This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce two guests today, Stephanie D'Alessandro and Matthew Gale. Stephanie is the Leonard A. Lauder Curator of Modern Art and Senior Research Coordinator in the Department of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Matthew is Senior Curator at Large at Tate Modern, London. Stephanie and Matthew are the co-curators of the exhibition Surrealism Beyond Borders, which opened at the Met on October 4th and will be on view there until January 30th, 2022. After this, it will travel to Tate Modern in London, where it will open on February 25th, 2022. This exhibition is, as Peter Scheldel wrote recently in the pages of The New Yorker, a deliriously entertaining survey. It reconsiders the movement of surrealism across boundaries of geography and chronology, tracing it within networks that span Eastern Europe to the Caribbean, Asia to North Africa, and Australia to Latin America. Stephanie and Matthew are also the co-editors of the exhibition's catalog, also titled Surrealism Beyond Borders. The book is a magnificent object and a sweeping work of scholarship featuring essays by dozens of contributing authors and covering nearly eight decades of work across 45 countries. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to you both, Stephanie and Matthew, about Surrealism Beyond Borders. And so thank you both very much for making the time. Thanks for the invitation. I, I feel a need to acknowledge up front the impossibility of covering the full range of ideas addressed in the book, let alone the number of artists and artworks. It's um, it's definitely a book to keep out on your desk or coffee table for a long while, knowing that every time you dip into it, you'll learn something new. Um, but it's also very impressive how you have imposed organizing ideas to help structure the incredible breadth of material that you cover. Can you talk a little bit about some of those organizing concepts and, and how you decided what those would be? Sure. Um, I think... For Matthew and I, when we began this project, we had a very early conversation where we were sort of talking about different ideas we had and found ourselves drawing Venn diagrams and realizing that a kind of linear chronological story wouldn't probably serve us, that it was something more organic, something based on the very early research that we had that was going to necessitate a more complicated and interwoven story. And so as we began the research for the project, we set aside the stories that we knew before, whether it was themes or characters or the history that we had read in books, and started with what we, what we found from primary documents, from publications and from exhibition catalogs. And we just collected artist names, art, noting where they were born and where they ended up and where they exhibited and began to focus on connections. And we drew many, many people, as you've noted, into this conversation as interlocutors, as kind of intrepid curators and collaborators, researchers and writers. And I would say, Matthew, that at a certain point, we kind of looked at it all together. And I think maybe with the view of the surrealist's own notions and interests about travel, saw all of those stories as kind of points in the sky of a set of stars 
and pulled themes together, whether it's ideas about transmission or points where artists came together or places where they converged, um, tried to pull different stories together that when we brought them together, either in the catalog or in the exhibition, we could tell layered kinds of stories. Would that be the right way to try to describe this? Yeah, I agree. I and mean, it's, it's uh, been a project that has grown even as we understood more. So it was constantly sort of disappearing beyond our reach, I think. Um, but trying to keep coming back to what it was that attracted individuals, groups at different moments to the ideas that were central to surrealism around ideas of freedom, essentially, creative freedom, social freedom, political freedom, were that was the measure that allowed us to keep keep coming back and, and testing our ideas as we, as we went along. I think um, we cannot understate the importance of the um, experts that we called upon to help us, both in um, presenting material with us, presenting material in the catalogue, but just having conversations along the way and to be able to be the, I think the roles that we play um, were to be the connectors between people who knew just so much more in great detail about particular, uh, particular areas or points in time. I think one way that also um, we were able to offer a different kind of story uh, and to set aside the ones we knew was sort of devising these fluid lines. So people who come to the exhibition will find a story of surrealism that's presented, but not necessarily a story of surrealists. And it's not one that begins with the publication of the first manifesto in 24 and then ends at some point between the 60s and today. But instead, uh, different different roots, let's say, to understand not only surrealism, but also to involve the 20th century itself into a part of the story. So the stories of anti-colonialism and war and um, the struggle for rights, political events, etc., get woven into the story of surrealism, not by force, but because from our research, we found surrealist stories located on those moments. And so... Um, when one opens the catalog, for example, you'll find after our introduction, a section about how surrealism traveled with technological advancement, whether that be publications or film or the radio, which was one of the most vibrant and interesting stories that's little known today, or points of convergence, um, places where surrealists came together in unexpected places and some stories that we couldn't tell in the exhibition, for example, Surrealism in Aleppo, which is such an incredibly interesting story, and one that I bet not many people know about, certainly Matthew and I didn't know about before we started, but it's one we're also not able to present in the exhibition because we're not able to borrow loans from Syria at this moment. Um, there are stories about horizons. If you imagine a traveler looking out from a boat, the sea and the sky meet, and it becomes muddy at certain times where one ends and one begins. And there are lots of stories about surrealism 
that get folded into stories of nationalism and internationalism. So where, for example, anthropophagia and Brazil and surrealism begin and end are part of our larger story when we're trying to understand a more international um, kind of experience of surrealism, how those stories can get lost in a, in a more precise kind of surrealism in Brazil kind of story, for example. Um, but on a larger scope, when we're talking about how ideas traffic can be involved in this, there are stories about displacement and travel and how surrealism is involved. There are stories about um, the fantasy and fallacy of elsewhere and objects and people who get involved in stories of surrealism, stories of artists under pressure in various ways and how surrealism can be useful as a tool in combating that. And then in the end, after all the research we did, I think Matthew and I were very excited to be able to realize that many of the familiar themes we know about surrealism, let's say the work of dreams, are still themes that were drawn upon and continue to be drawn upon by surrealist artists, but we've reimagined them in broad chronological and geographic ways. So we're retelling, I think, a, a more familiar story through more unfamiliar names and people and artworks. So this may be approaching similar ideas from a slightly different direction, but um, the the name of André Breton, the French writer and poet, um, the leader and principal theorist of surrealism, appears throughout the book. Um, uh, one of the aims of the project is to look at surrealism and identify the artists working within a broader surrealist tradition outside of Paris, outside of Breton and his circle, even outside of some of the specific ways that he codified surrealism, what was it was it challenging to reconcile that aim with the centrality of Breton himself to the story of surrealism, or was that um, was that a much was that a much clearer connection? I think with Breton, so much um, defined surrealism from the outset in the autumn of nineteen twenty four that it, it is a it is a challenge and one that he probably would have appreciated to think think through surrealism in a slightly different way um, and to try to understand how there were other voices who were equally important but in different circumstances. Uh, so there, it, it may be that there are uh, moments in time where Breton is central but also that there are people responding to Breton uh, and taking the, those ideas further. Um, that having been said, there, there was there were there was open rejection of Breton in some ways, and, a, and an idea that you could uh, build surrealism for yourself, irrespective of that central position held in Paris. And I think one of the things we wanted to get away from, especially in in thinking about constructing an exhibition, was that not everybody. Uh, had to be working in Paris uh, and be the sort of uh, obvious candidates uh, in exploring this wider view and longer term view. I think it's also a bit of a challenge for all of us to um, think about what we think surrealism is. There's a certain level where uh, we made the conscious decision not to do an exhibition about Paris surrealism uh, spread around the world, but rather to understand that 
however an artist calls upon their work to be surreal um, or to be engaged in surrealism, let's say. However, whatever moment they worked through surrealism to something else, that's a part of the story of surrealism itself. And that is a very specific kind of reorientation that we chose to take on for our show. Um, so we're not worrying so much about whether Breton included someone or not, or whether someone read the Surrealist Manifesto. It also um, takes on, I think, a more honest view of how we know surrealism trafficked. There were many artists who saw a work, for example, Skander Bogosian in the 60s, who comes from Ethiopia to London and then Paris and experiences the work of Vifredo Lam and Mata and finds in that a surrealism, a, a, a method for himself, a weapon, a tool for himself in surrealism that allowed him to express a different kind of work, give him an opportunity to work through the idea of black identity that surrealism allowed him as he understood it from other artists' work. And we also know there are many instances of translation where translation allows ideas to be spread, but it also morphs and slips and allows for reimagining. Um, you know, Japan is a really interesting uh, relay point for surrealism in Asia. And we know that artists in China and Korea, for example, learned about surrealism from what they read from Japanese materials for the most part. And in the case of China, uh, we know that a journal called Yifeng, Artwind, published a Chinese version of the manifesto, except it was an excerpt that was um, purported to be the manifesto as it was translated in Japanese. And so there are necessary, necessary slippages that happen in that way. And for Matthew and I, we chose not to see that as a detriment but as a productive opportunity to see how artists come to that idea then and bring their own needs to surrealism, what it could offer at a specific point in time. So Breton's not displaced. I would say he's set to the side and merged with a further experience beyond. So we didn't, we didn't knock him down in the show. That wasn't our intent, but keep him in the background, keep the sort of more mainstream idea there but to try to expand it and allow for further interpretation for surrealism with a capital S that's not necessarily defined solely by how it was written and codified in, in Paris. Right. And so once you're looking at surrealism as a global phenomenon this way, um, it sort of, you know, it brings new perspectives to the importance of the relationship between surrealism and politics, which is a complicated and inconsistent relationship, and of course, unique to the circumstances of the artists who were living and working in countries all around the world and at different times. Um, do you think that there are any keys to understanding the relationship between surrealism and politics that are, that are you know, broadly applicable? I guess I... I... I mean, it's slightly in contrary to what we've just been saying. I would reach to Breton again and draw upon his distinction between uh, liberation at the time of the end of the Second World War and liberty. And he talks about liberation as um, a sort of functional rectification of the system uh, of occupation that had 
was the result of the conflict, but that liberty, he just says, it is help. And so I think that that's fundamental to the things that connect people who are drawn to surrealism and the groups that coalesce around ideas around surrealism. But as you rightly say, the circumstances change and may at, at the same moment be quite distinct in different places. There's um, a, a fascinating moment in 1968 where there's a surrealism, surrealism exhibition held in Czechoslovakia just prior to the Soviet um, invasion of Czechoslovakia that, that put an end to the Prague Spring. But even just at that moment, the French view of the politics of surrealism was quite different from the Czech view of the politics of surrealism because their life circumstances were so different. There was a, essentially a student revolution going on in France that uh, gained uh, considerable sympathy amongst the surrealists. But in uh, Czechoslovakia, even under the Prague Spring, they were living with repression. I think there are lots of examples in the show of artists who directly used politics with a capital P um, or merged their surrealism with politics, um, but not all artists did. Um, and I think that's an important thing to think about. But two other examples that I find really interesting, one maybe more inward focused on the U.S. and then another sort of against it all is um, the, the Chicago Surrealists who were, you know, absolutely on the ground during the, the revolts and demonstrations in 68 in Chicago um, at the mimeograph machine on the streets. Their, their, their Surrealist action at a certain point was one of radical politics producing leaflets and uh, zines and posters. Um, the slogan that we know today, make love, not war, came from the Chicago Surrealists. We didn't know that for a long time. We've forgotten that wonderful fact. Um, so surrealism itself can be merged with politics in a really real way. Um, and in the exhibition um, we in, in New York, we've, we've, concluded the exhibition with an amazing example of the work of Ted Jones, who sort of rejected a country and rejected its politics, that of endemic racism at the time, and chose to construct basically his own world, his own country, um, as he traveled for the rest of his life, um, and believed very deeply in the politics that he held dear, um, and through his actions, um, lived that, that reality. Um, building this incredible group of artists and thinkers and writers and musicians who thought a different way in many places around the world, from Europe to Africa to Latin America and Canada and parts of New York once in a while and the rest of the United States, um, and really built his own, I don't want to call it a nation, but his own community, um, very much against the politics of the United States and the racism of the United States. So your mention of the of this community building actually brings me to another one of my questions, which is about the specifically about the thread that runs throughout the book of this idea of the collective nature of surrealism, the importance of forming groups, of forming communities of collective action, um, apart from 
Ted Jones, are there other particularly consequential examples of this collective mindset? Or And actually also, are there any important counterexamples that you might cite of artists who really um, were out, out on their own? Well, I can give one example um, of a kind of communal desire and how poignant it might be. Uh, Tessel Bodin has written a very beautiful essay in our catalog um, uh, and, and taught us about the work of a group of artists who gathered around surrealist ideas in 1940s Nazi-occupied Utrecht, um, who got together on Monday nights secretly um, at a moment when it was very dangerous to do so and engage in surrealist activities together, whether they were making exquisite corpse drawings um, or reciting poetry or making collages together and other things. And from those Monday evenings began a journal called Die Schöne Zaktuk, or The Clean Kerchief. And it was a handmade journal that was basically ready for publication, but could never be published. After the group made each volume, and they did this for about three years, they had to basically put it in a drawer and imagine that as a way of sharing it with the rest of the world, because of course they couldn't publish it and distribute it at the time. Um, their very first journal has an editorial statement that is called Darkened Principles and is represented by a piece of black paper that would function much like the kind of paper you'd put in your windows during an air raid. Um, and it remained secret for many, many years and is being shown in the exhibition for the very first time in the United States. And I think the very first time in London, I think it's only been shown once, right, Matthew, in, in the Netherlands. Um, but the drive to work together and the drive to connect with others um, and to do so in this collaborative way, uh, especially at this time, feels incredibly significant and a great example of what artists felt was important. Uh, and what they would do to try to connect that way. Yeah, I mean, the group activity does seem to be something that is characteristic of surrealism. It's a mutual support network, both locally. Um, and another example that immediately comes to mind is a, a group of artists who, and writers who gather together in Santiago de Chile. Um, but you see it again, you, Stephanie, you mentioned um, Yu Feng, a group of artists in mid-30s, uh, Shanghai gathering together. It, it's a, it's about an exchange of ideas and mutually enriching because of that. Uh, there, for every example, of course, there, I suppose there are counterexamples. The person who comes readily to mind is Joseph Cornell, who's so much a sort of fellow tra traveler of surrealism, but so much a loner. Um, but he still had his networks that connected him to surrealism. And one of the other topics that, that we may touch upon, I guess, is through surrealist publications, how they became the means for that mutual connection and mutual information. And Cornell was, you know, well invested and aware of those uh, sorts of links. So for many people, it was a it was personal conversation and exchange, but for some, uh, it could be found through other means of transmission. Well, and the the collaborative work is reflected in 
the book that you have produced. It's fantastic. The essays are marvelous. Uh, and I want to thank you both again very much for talking to me today about the book, the exhibition, Surrealism Beyond Borders. Um, I'll say again, the, the exhibition is now on view and until January 30th at the Met and subsequently from February 25th until August 29th at 2022 at Tate Modern. Stephanie and Matthew, thank you again very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The book can be purchased now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. And please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.